Welcome to Rag Back. My name's Frank Burton. We've got all sorts of things lined up for you this week, including the next chapter of The Man Who Gets Things Wrong. I also have an amazing guest, the totally great Ben Goldberg. We also have a special appearance from friend of the show, Pranay Sastri from Calica. Now, listen, I know good music and bad music is a matter of personal taste and all that, but I would say there are a handful of musicians walking this earth who are just unquestionably good. Ben Goldberg is one of those people. You'll see what I mean later on. Here's one of the things he's going to be saying to me. There's many aspects of the work in art that, re- that require us to make use of our inner 15-year-old. <laughs> You, you know what I mean? Like, like you got to. I know exactly what you yeah, exactly, on, yes. on some on some level, you have to jump off that cliff. And fifteen year olds are much better at jumping off a cliff than sixty year olds. That's how old I am now. Yeah, partly, partly I know what I'm doing, but partly I also don't know what I'm doing. But I, but I do have the experience of throwing myself into situations where I don't know what I'm doing, and keeping my head on my shoulders and finding. a a nice way through it. If you were listening last week, you'll have heard already that the plans for the hypothetical bank heist that myself and the actor Benedict Cumberbatch put together have mysteriously gone missing. And I can't help wondering who stole them. They were taken from the back of the van while I was sleeping. I'm a difficult guy to track down, for one thing. I'm of no fixed abode. Hold on a minute, Frank. Are you telling us you've been living in the van throughout lockdown with no access to a public toilet, a shower or a laundrette for months on end? Well, no, actually, I've been isolating in a house for the most part. Whose house, Frank? Uh, it's a story for another time, listeners. It's an interesting one. I'll give you that. I haven't spoken about it because, I don't know, it's not been the right time. I'm thinking of including the details in one of my memoirs. Watch out for that. On the subject of this missing notebook, the only people who knew about it were myself, Benedict, and you, you the listener, and that's it. So, I will have to address the possibility that the notebook thief is listening to this. Hello, notebook thief. Yes, I am talking directly to you. Why did you steal my notebook? Are you planning on robbing that bank? Or is this what you wanted? Did you just want to shout out? You could have just sent me an email. Who are you, notebook thief? Are you Alistair Tracy? Are you Eduardo? Are you Fabulous Friedrich from Walthamstow? Are you Felicity Bin Laden? Are you Felix Munnery, the saviour of humankind? Are you Lazarus Newman? It'd be strange if you were. Are you Reagan from Texas with the jam? Remember that one, listeners? Oh, full marks to everyone who understood all of those references. You've been listening and paying attention. I suggest the rest of you go back to episode one and start this whole thing again. I'll wait. I'm joking, of course. You can get on and off this roller coaster ride whenever and wherever you like. I just like to throw in a few back references from time to time just for the Ragbag completists. You guys are the greatest. 
Now I'm going to play a newly released track by Calica. I interviewed Prane from the band last year and he sent us an audio message to introduce this new track which is called Made Up. I can't recommend this band highly enough and it's early days for them. I anticipate great things to come. Now, here's Prane. Hey Frank, really good to be talking to you again. Um, I really, really enjoyed our conversation the last time around. Yeah, looking forward to sharing some things with you today. So you wanted to hear a little bit about the lineup. A lot of things have changed, of course. I've recently moved from the Netherlands back to India. And having moved here, as I told you the last time, I still wanted to continue everything that I've started. So I found a bunch of super, super talented musicians, um, really cool guys and girl. So we've got Sanjita Bhattacharya, who's like a phenomenally talented vocalist. She just um, recently graduated from Berkeley Music School. And I mean, she's made quite a name for herself here already. So she's going to be in the band and she has a lot to offer. Really excited about seeing what she can do here. Um, we've got Jay Shirsagar, who is a very talented musician. He plays a lot of instruments and he just has this super creative musical mind. And we connect on a lot of things outside of the musical world as well. So it's really nice to have him on board. We've got Vinay, Vinay Ravindra Rao. Um, he's a really well-known bassist in the in the local area. He's a music teacher himself and he has played for international bands that tour in India and stuff. So he's quite a well-known guy himself. Really exciting to have him on board as well. Then we've got Yuvan, who, Yuvan Makar. He is... He's kind of like a percussionist and he also has um, a lot of experience with like electronics and samplers and stuff, which is kind of why we're bringing him on board. It's super exciting to have someone like this in the band as well. We haven't explored this territory before, so I'm really excited about that. Um, and with uh, with regards to the music, we've been making a lot of music. Like I have been super, super creative. Like I've been making music nonstop. I'm sitting on a lot of material and we would like to release um, like a song a month. Um, the next one of that songs is uh, Made Up. Um, and it's probably the one that you are um, featuring on here as well. In the future, like um, we have a few songs that we intend to put out as well, at least three songs in, in the year 2020. The first one is a remade version of My Friends Are Virgins. We wanted to redo it with a bit of a twist. And we'll also have Raghav Sachar, who's a really big name in the local um, music industry. He's super talented, plays like 30 plus instruments and he's also involved in a lot of Bollywood projects and stuff. He'll be on that song. It's definitely something you should keep your eye out for. And we have a couple of other songs that will be coming as well. Uh, I'm thinking Stock Personality and Zen would be the, the songs to follow. Um, so with these releases, I mean, it's really sort of really depends on whether we're able to pull this off with the whole Corona situation. So please send us your best wishes um, we really need a good mixture of luck and hard work <laughs> to get all of this done. So, of course, we always appreciate that you've been with us on the journey and we hope you'll stick around to see how all of this works out. So thank you so much. And man, it's always really great to talk to you. I hope you'll have a chance to talk again in the near future. Sweet. See ya.
So, here's something totally brilliant for you. Let's read The Man Who Gets Things Wrong, Chapter 2. Mr. Sheringbourne glanced at the sheet of paper in his clipboard. The next interview candidate was due to enter his office in two minutes' time, and as yet, he hadn't got round to examining the man's CV. Sometimes he didn't bother with the CVs at all. He'd be asking the candidate himself soon enough about his work experience and goals for the future, but he had a couple of minutes to kill so he thought he might as well have a look. For a moment he had a sneaking suspicion there'd been a mistake. The man had no business experience whatsoever. He was university educated and since leaving university had worked as a primary school teacher. How had this man come to be selected for interview when he clearly didn't meet the criteria? Had one of his colleagues slipped a fake CV into his folder as a joke? If so, it wasn't funny. Mr. Sheringbourne didn't laugh. The candidate was shown into the office by one of the secretaries. He shook Mr. Sheringbourne by the hand. Hello, said the man. I'm the man who gets things wrong. Pleased to meet you. Hello, said Mr. Sheringbourne, and left it at that. He gestured for the candidate to take a seat opposite him. I just have one question, Mr. Sheringbourne began. What are you doing here? I'm here to be interviewed, said the man who gets things wrong, with what seemed to be a rather overconfident smile. You're here to be interviewed for the position of creative director of this company. Exactly. What experience do you have? Or qualifications? As a minimum, you need an MBA. I have a PGCE, said the man who gets things wrong. That qualifies you to be a teacher, not to be the creative director of a large multinational company. I'm a very creative person, actually, said the man who gets things wrong. That's what attracted me to this job the most. It had the word creative in the job title. Also, director. It seems to me I need some direction in my life. A new direction, I was thinking. I liked the sound of the wages, much better than what I'm earning right now. In your job, as a primary school teacher. The thing is, Mr Sherrybourne, I'm not entirely sure how long that job's going to last. I was suspended last week. In my opinion, maybe it's time to jump before I'm pushed and go for some kind of career change. Did Sydney put you up to this? Who's Sydney? You're a joke candidate, right? It's very impressive how you're able to say all these things with a straight face. Maybe you should go into acting. Maybe that should be your change in direction. Not a bad idea. I'll consider that. I'm very much keeping my options open right now, Mr. Sheringbourne. But let me assure you, I am not a joke candidate, as you put it. Look, said Mr. Sheringbourne, I wasn't personally involved in selecting candidates for this position, OK? So I don't know how you somehow slipped through the net. 
I'd be interested to know. Well, said the man who gets things wrong, I have a strategy, you see. I got past the first stage, which is convincing the selection committee on my application. The next stage, as I understand it, is this discussion with yourself, a more informal discussion than stage three, which will be the interview panel. So I intend to convince you as well using this same strategy of mine. Then all I have to do is convince the interview panel and hey presto, I'm your brand new creative director. Mr. Sheringbourne rolled his eyes and span his chair away from the man who gets things wrong. That overconfident look was getting pretty annoying. Go on then, he said. Seen as I've put some time aside to see you, please do tell me what this strategy of yours is. Converting my weakness into strength, said the man who gets things wrong. You want to know what my weakness is? Not really, but do go on. My weakness is that I get things wrong all the time. Not just the occasional error here and there, I mean... I am absolutely hopeless. It's amazing that I've managed to hold down a job for this long. Maybe it's something to do with the fact that I'm all things to all people. I'm sorry, you're what? We'll come to that part later. What I'm saying is, I get things wrong. I was suspended from my last job because I didn't know the definition of the word incorrigible. Can you believe that? Well, I know the definition now. It refers to a person who can't be changed, a person with flaws that simply cannot be corrected. Appropriately enough, that's me. I am incorrigible. So, I was sitting at home. Actually, I was lying in bed because I didn't have a reason to get up. And I thought to myself, how can I turn this negative side of myself into a positive? What's my next career move? And how can I make it work for me? Then it occurred to me what I've been getting wrong all this time. I've been getting things wrong by accident. So if it's really the case that I can't be cured, that I'm destined to live the rest of my life getting things wrong over and over again, what I really need to start doing is getting things wrong on purpose. How do I do that? Easy peasy. All I have to do is listen to my instincts. We all have this filter inside ourselves, don't we? Even those really irritating people you encounter in life sometimes who happily declare, I've got no filter. What they mean is they're not very nice and saying I've got no filter gives them some kind of free reign to insult people whenever they want. But even those people have a filter. You'll never see them insult someone who's likely to knock them out with a flick of the wrist, enter Goliath and, oh look, David's got a filter all of a sudden. He's all talk. But I've got a filter too, of course. What I've started to do is selectively turn that filter off when it comes to making major decisions. I asked myself, what would I really like to do? A part of me said, I want a high-powered job a massive salary, doing some kind of creative jiggery-pokery for a FTSE 100 company? Ordinarily, I'd have a voice in my head 
telling me it's the wrong thing to do. Instead, I turned that voice right off. More accurately, I didn't turn it off. I listened to it. I said, yes, you're right. That would be the wrong career move for me. It would be absolutely disastrous. But you know what? I am the man who gets things wrong. So I'm doing this. I'm applying for this job. Not because I'm the right candidate, but because I'm the wrong candidate. And that sets me apart from every other person you'll see today, Mr. Sheringbourne. These people have all the right experience. They have all the right qualifications. You might see that as an advantage for them, but think about it. Think about how different I am to them. I'm a man with an entirely different skill set, an entirely different outlook. Instead of reading the right books, meeting the right people, or crunching the right numbers, I have positively embraced my ability to get things wrong, and I'm turning it to my advantage. It's like that episode of Seinfeld, where George does the opposite of whatever his instincts tell him. I can tell from your face you don't understand that reference. It was the wrong reference to make, that's fine. I am the man who gets things wrong. It was a bad reference anyway, because what George did in that episode was he became successful by ignoring his base instincts, which have always landed him in trouble. With me, I'm doing the opposite of the opposite, if that makes any sense. I'm finally following my instincts, despite the fact that my instincts are wrong. Mr. Sheringbourne continued staring out the window. I'd say I was right, Mr. Man Who Gets Things Wrong, he said. You are the joke candidate. The man who gets things wrong jumped to his feet. Then he jumped in the air, flipped himself over and landed on his hands. He walked on his hands in a circle for a while. He said, I'm not the joke candidate. I'm what's known as a wild card. Every job of this nature requires one of those. That's the argument I put forward on the application anyway. Clearly, I made a convincing case because I've been invited to see you today despite the fact that I meet none of the minimum requirements for this position. Not a single one. There are 17 points on that list. That's a hell of a lot of minimum requirements. Clearly, you're looking for a very, 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 very specific kind of person like you might as well put the person's name on the minimum requirements you must be called George Fardlington and be one of the other directors golfing buddies maybe and I'm just offering one piece of impartial feedback take it from me a man who knows absolutely nothing whatsoever maybe your job description is a little too specific it leaves no room for someone like me, a man who can walk on his hands during a job interview and keep it up throughout one of his uncalled-for extended monologues. I must say, said Mr Sheringbourne, that part of this routine of yours is actually very impressive. How did you learn to walk on your hands like that? I'm glad you asked me that question said the man who gets things wrong. It's an interesting story.
So there you have it, listeners. Chapter 2 of The Man Who Gets Things Wrong. I am starting to like this character more and more. I'm glad that I've decided to have him embrace his own incompetence like this. I think that makes him a little bit more of a likeable character. As I mentioned last week, the original idea was that he spends the whole of the book messing things up. He loses his job and it's downhill from there. But instead of that, I decided that he's going to do very well for himself. He'll continue to get things wrong, but somehow it all works out in his favour. It's an underdog story, I suppose. You can get behind him as the reader or the listener, whatever. You can root for him. So what's going to happen in chapter three? Will he get the job? Yes, of course he's going to get the job. He's going to do well for himself. How well? We'll have to wait and see. I haven't decided yet and that's okay. Maybe he'll eventually become prime minister. Although I will have to be careful. I don't want to get too far-fetched with all this. I don't think British people would really buy the idea of having, you know, an incompetent prime minister. We'll see. But this is fun. It's fun for me not knowing what's going to happen next. Over the course of the next week, I'll put pen to paper and I'll see what magic comes out. Maybe it won't be magic. Maybe it'll all go wrong, which in a way might be entirely appropriate. But that's okay. It's all okay. If you write a bad chapter, you write a bad chapter. You delete it and you write a better one. But what I think I'll do just to keep things interesting and just to keep up this idea that I'm teaching you how the writing process works... I'll write the next chapter and I'll read it out on the podcast next week, regardless of whether it's any good or not. If it's a good chapter, that's great. We can all enjoy listening to the good chapter. If it's a bad chapter, even better, even better. We can talk about how bad it is in a way. I'm hoping it turns out bad now. So you can see how things can go wrong with stories and what you can do to fix them. I'll leave that up to the gods. The story gods that live in the Frank Burton brain. Frank Burton talk about himself in third person and miss out words in sentence. Frank Burton, stop talking now and play tune. Just something I'm trying out, guys, saying sentences with words missing. Uh, it's really not working. Not working very well at all. That I didn't like that at all. Let's play a tune.
Let's crack straight on with my interview with the great Ben Goldberg. Ben has had a long and fruitful career as a jazz musician. His music has taken many forms over the years, including the new Klezmer Trio, which we'll be talking about, plus a whole lot more. I've already had a bunch of conversations about musicians' lockdown experiences and lockdown recordings over the last few months. Uh, Georgia Train's album, I Do, was recorded and released during lockdown. Liz Frencham's album, Love and Other Crimes, recorded and released in lockdown. If you're particularly interested in how that whole process works, I recommend listening to those two previous episodes. You'll also be very interested to hear about Ben Goldberg's lockdown experience. He's written, recorded and released a new piece of music every day since his lockdown began on March 19th in an expanding project called Plague Diary. We'll hear more about it very soon, but first, let's hear something from it. Thank you. 
Plague Diary is a project that I started on March 19th, which was more or less the day that we got the orders to shelter in place uh, because of COVID-19. Suddenly, I mean, really within the space of maybe like two days or three days, I lost every bit of work that I had as a musician, all the concerts, all the tours that I had planned, uh, playing in other people's bands, my own projects, where I was gonna go different places and play concerts, everything got canceled. And that was a real shock. Among other things, it kind of left me with a feeling of like, okay, now what do I do? And I had been messing around a little bit with recording at home. And fortunately I had a little bit of equipment that I could make use of. So the thing that occurred to me is I just thought, okay, I'm gonna record a new song. I'll, I'll write and record a new song every day. The reason for doing it was in, in a lot of ways, just because I couldn't think of anything else to do. So much of my daily musical activity was centered around touring and playing live concerts for people. So it just seemed to me that maybe the thing to do would be to just try recording something every day. Uh, so I started that on March 19th and, and now it's already July 6th and I've missed a couple of days, but more or less I've recorded a new song every day. For me, the tools at hand consist of my clarinets and a couple of synthesizers, aside from the recording equipment itself. I've gotten busy working with those materials and seeing what the possibilities are. Just the other day, I posted the 100th song on Plague Diary. Every day I put, up, I put the songs up on a Bandcamp album that's called Plague Diary, and the album is free. That's important to me. I offer it to, the, I offer it to listeners for free. And I guess I could say in hopes that the music might be helpful to people at this difficult time. Is the music written or do you kind of improvise some of it or is it carefully planned before you record? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's an interesting question because, um, I mean, my typical method of composing music up until I started doing Plague Diaries really was, I mean, I would spend hours and hours and hours at the piano working out melodies, harmonies, arrangements. And by the time I brought the music to a group to rehearse and, 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 and learn it and, and, and play it. I mean, a lot of it had been worked out ahead of time, not the, obviously not the improvised sections or the improvised solos, but I've been very careful to, to work out the details of the compositions before bringing it to the musicians. And now I'm in a completely different situation. And part of what I saw as a challenge or an opportunity for me was to learn how to use the recording process itself as a kind of sketch pad, as a way of working out the ideas right there on the, I guess it's not tape these days, but basically on the tape, and to develop almost all of the music that, that's on Plague Diary has not been written down ahead of its performance. 
So if there's part, there are a lot of parts that I, that I work out at the moment and then try to deliver a, a convincing uh, take of, of that passage or that section of the song. I, in a way, I could say that part of the challenge that I presented to myself is to is the challenge of working things out that can be learned by memory at the moment, so that nothing. I I, I can't write passages that are too too long and convoluted, or or I can't. I should say I can't write passages that are too that are longer and more convoluted than I can retain in my memory and long enough to actually play them on tape. It's interesting what you're saying about kind of you're doing things differently now because of the circumstances. And I'm just wondering if uh, like presuming that things are going to get back to normal at some point and uh, you know, you'll be able to perform live again, you'll be able to do your usual thing once again. And, but has, has the actual process of recording uh, The Plague Diary, has this kind of changed the way that you will do things in the future when you come to record uh, future albums? Yeah, something tells me that it will. I mean, one, one skill or, or ability that we try to cultivate as improvising musicians is, I guess you could say like the ability to contemplate the music as it's being played. Because you want to have, you want to be relaxed enough and thoughtful enough to have a feeling about where things are going as it's unfolding. And I feel like this project for me is giving me a, a lot of opportunity to practice that skill, and in a sense, with a safety net, because I'm recording the music at home. And if if it doesn't go well, I just recorded another record another version of it. But the goal is to achieve the ability to contemplate the music as it's unfolding in time. And I, I have a feeling that my ability to do that is very slowly getting stronger. So I'm kind of looking forward to the opportunity to get back to live music. And I, I guess the answer to your question is, I guess we'll see. For one thing, let's hope that there is, that there will again be opportunities to perform live. Well, I'm sure there will be. It's just a question of when and what form that will take in the short term, I guess. Yeah. I really like it because I like the idea of it being a, a diary. And, you know, when you think of a diary, mm -hmm. it's kind of a, a written down thing the written word recording your thoughts and feelings whereas obviously this is instrumental music so is it the case right. that do you think of it in that way yourself in terms of uh, I'm feeling this way today so I'm going to put my thoughts and feelings into this piece because I'm feeling this way on this particular day you know I think part of my intent with calling it a diary is my I kind of have a feeling that the sorting out and the understanding and the uh, ability to achieve some kind of perspective about what we're experiencing right now is all of those activities are probably going to be saved for a later day. And right now we're in the thick of it. Like suddenly, we suddenly everybody was right in the thick of it in a situation that's more or less unprecedented in history and certainly unprecedented in our lifetimes. So I kind of felt like I don't really know. 
I don't know what's going on, and I don't think anybody else really knows what's going on. But I do have a commitment to the imagination. I guess I feel like my task as an artist is to apply the full force of the imagination to the present situation. And the Plague Diary is giving me a chance to do that every day. You know, I've been thinking about the way that art is where we put everything that we know and partially in hopes of creating a vehicle for the transmission of knowledge into the future. And I'm, I, f- I do feel like I'm experiencing that every day in creating music where I feel like, what do you put into a song? Everything you know. Not all the things you can do, that's something different, but everything you know, which includes the struggle to achieve some kind of balance uh, of ingredients and, and uh, sounds and, and, and also, uh, you know, knowledge, the, 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 the different knowledge that's been cultivated over time, knowledge of harmony, knowledge of, of melody, knowledge of groove. So I kind of feel like in a way, like that's really my job, like every day make a song and put everything I know into it. And later on, we will have the opportunity to reflect on this time. And, and I, I feel like what I'm creating and what everybody else is creating all over the world right now is gonna be very useful in that regard. I've spoken to kind of other people who have recorded and released music during their lockdown experience. And they've mm-hmm. kind of released kind of uh, lockdown albums, you know what I mean? It's kind of, it feels like right. it's, it's become <laughs> it, its own little music <laughs> sub genre, you know? And um, it's, yeah. it feels like it's, uh, it, it's a matter of historical record because we're living through a, yeah. a period in history that is going to be looked back upon in a hundred years time. I don't know what they'll be saying about it in a hundred years time. I hope there'll be people around in a hundred years time. But um, you know what I mean? It's kind of, it feels like we're living through a significant period in history. And perhaps what you're doing with the Plague Diary is that you're recording that uh, every day. Definitely. And and in some ways, I mean, I'm sure that my day-to-day emotional state is getting reflected in the music. But I think like many people, I'm kind of trying not to dwell too much on that and instead just... I'm trying to stay focused on the work because like recording for me, like writing and recording a new song every day, that's a lot of work that takes up the whole day, every day. I like having work to do. So it's uh, keeping me together. Thank you. 
some ways I was kind of born into it. Um, my mother played the clarinet when I was little. I used to beg her to play. Even before I knew what the, even before I could remember what the clarinet was called, I used to say, take that black thing out of the box and blow in it. So I was always crazy about the clarinet. When I got the opportunity when I was in elementary school to choose an instrument, of course, I wanted to play the clarinet. And you know, looking back on it, I was really, really lucky to be growing up in a time and a place when people were uh, investing in music programs in the public schools. So I, starting in grade four, I could play in the band and get uh, instruction. And then throughout uh, middle school and also high school, uh, there are lots of opportunities to learn and to play band and orchestra. And I always wanted to play jazz. When I was young, it's funny to think back on a time, a strange period of musical history in which the clarinet was temporarily not considered to be a jazz instrument. Very strange now that I'm thinking about it. Although at the time it seemed like it was obviously true that you shouldn't play the clarinet in jazz. Funny thing is there used to be so many wonderful clarinetists in jazz and clarinet was a primary instrument in the okay. world of jazz. What, what, what period are we talking about when, when the clarinet? Well, if you think about like the, yeah, like the 1970s, 1980s. Right, okay. Um, so it, it was very strange. As a jazz instrument during that time? Well, if you wanted to play, if you wanted to, if you were in school and you wanted to play in the jazz band, you had to pick up the saxophone. You couldn't oh, just be okay, a clarinetist. Right. You know, and, and we all kind of accepted that as just the way things were. The saxophone had come to really dominate jazz, or at least jazz woodwind playing. And clarinet was really considered to be like a clunky thing of the past. But I really wanted to, you know, like, even though I, I tried to play the saxophone, and it was pretty much of a disaster, but it did allow me to get into the jazz band in school. But I still, I had this dream that I wanted to be a, an improvising clarinetist or a jazz clarinetist. So um, as I continued to study and uh, take lessons and really learn how to play the clarinet, that's the direction that I wanted to take it in for myself, direction of improvised music and, and jazz. Now, you know, now it, clarinet is back in the world of jazz. I mean, I don't think there's still... Uh, rejection of the clarinet as a jazz instrument these days. Yeah, I d I'm, I'm interested in the idea of, of the clarinet being like the forbidden fruit <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that, that uh, you were tempted by somehow as a child. Uh-huh, yeah, sure, yeah. Well, it has such a beautiful sound. It's such a mysterious instrument. The sound is so mysterious to me. It's a very complex instrument. The acoustics of the clarinet and therefore the fingering system are extremely complex. And I think in a lot of ways, more complex than the human brain can actually deal with. I feel like there's always, when you play the clarinet, there's, you're always stepping into uh, a world of mystery and uh, a situation where not all decisions are in your conscious control. It's always a back and forth with the instrument between the player and the instrument 
with the clarinet. Is that the only instrument that you feel that way about? Well, it's the only instrument I feel that way about, but I don't play all, I don't play. I only get defeated by two instruments, the clarinet and the piano. That's, that's my battleground. <laughs> but those are the only instruments I try to play. So, I mean, it could, that, what I just said about the clarinet, perhaps that's a universal experience of people trying to play an instrument. I'm not exactly sure. But I do know that it's true of the clarinet. Yeah, it feel, feels like a uh, kind of a, a relationship. Definitely, definitely. And, and I think, I mean, one model for me is some of the great uh, old uh, blues guitarists. A good example for me is Blind Willie Johnson, who allowed the guitar to finish the vocal phrase. And you can, I feel like you can really hear the way that there's, a, between the singer and the guitar, there's a, a push and a pull. There's a back and forth. Sometimes the guitar asserts its right to say what it wants to say. And sometimes the person playing the guitar and singing has the upper hand, but it's always a, a dialogue. And I kind of feel like, for me, that's one model that I try to keep in mind about playing the clarinet. Yeah, so um, from that point, once you found that relationship, where did you go from there? That's a good question. For me, I would say that there, that there is several pillars that were very important to me. One was having a wonderful clarinet teacher. I studied with a man called Rosario Mazzeo, who was one of the uh, most brilliant clarinet teachers of the 20th century. So I was very fortunate to be able to study with him. And so part of the effort was involved in, I mean, part of my effort, therefore, was directed towards just solving the technical difficulties of the instrument. I put a lot of work into that. And another very important teacher of mine was Steve Lacey. And I had fallen in love with the, mu with the music of Steve Lacey. And I was kind of infatuated with Steve Lacey. I'm talking about when I was in my early 20s, I used to uh, follow him around. When I was in Europe, I would follow Steve Lacey around and uh, listen to him play. And then every time I got a chance to talk with him, I'd ask, would he give me a lesson? And eventually, maybe he just was tired of being bugged about it, but he said, yeah, okay, good. Come over tomorrow afternoon. So I had one lesson with Steve Lacey and he showed me some of the uh, methods that he had invented for himself in order to learn about music. He said, you could do this, you could do that. I wrote it all down and, and I went home and I spent the next 20 years of my life working on the stuff that he had given me that afternoon. So that was a momentous event in my life, having the lesson with Steve Lacey, but also like an, uh, the type of event that has ongoing reverberations because I really dedicated myself to working on and, and trying to understand the types of the exercises that he had shown me that day. Well, and they okay. were quite useful. They were very useful. And, they, and that's really like, those exercises are what opened up my, my ability to uh, start to hear and put together something of my own. Well, what things in particular did he say to you that, that really sort of resonated with you that much? The basic texture that hit me so hard, I'd say was made out of two things. One was that 
Steve Lacey was talking to me about the work of art. Let's, let's put it that way, the work of art. Not a work of art, but the work of art. The work that goes into art. Yeah, I think that's a way to put it, actually, because, because he was talking about art. He was saying things about art. He was talking about, he was saying things about topics that I had very little understanding of, and also that I never would have dreamed were things that somebody could say something about. And he was, at the same time, he was approaching those topics, which were so mysterious to me, from a perspective of what are the practical steps that we can take in order to understand, make use of, and internalize the principles of art. So there were two, there was, so for me, the two kind of mind-blowing things. One was just being in the presence of somebody who had lived his life in art and was able to articulate something about the nature of art. And, and at the same time, it was so down to earth. The, what he was talking about was so down to earth that, that that was the other part that really blew my mind was that the revelation that if you do want to step into the world of art, if you do want to try to understand art, make make some art yourself, try to deal with it. Uh, you have to break it down into discrete and understandable steps that you can actually work on every day. It's not a matter of just contemplating the cosmic mysteries or something like that. You can actually invent exercises that address the issues raised by the desire to pursue a life in art. So, the, so both sides of that were revelatory to me, and especially at the age that I was, hit me really hard and basically changed my life. So um, in terms of the, the musical aspect, and, and this in a way wasn't completely foreign to me because like I said, I had a very good teacher, instrumental teacher, but, but Steve Lacey was interested in inventing exercises that could be done every day that would allow you to get your hands on and get your mind around the actual building blocks of music in a, in a kind of neutral way, almost like saying like, let's break it all down into molecules because stuff is made out of molecules. And if you wanna make your own stuff, you better get your hands directly onto the molecules. So those exercises that he showed me were excruciating and time consuming. And it's the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. But I, I had a, a feeling that that, was, that that was the path. So I just devoted myself to it every day. And eventually a few things became, I don't want to say things became clear, but stuff started happening. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty deep stuff, man. Um, it, I think it was worth following that guy around, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I didn't have any choice. I had no choice. <laughs> He was my hero. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that, that's really cool. One thing that I um, wanted to, yeah, I'm just kind of interested in because I've been reading quite a bit about it and stuff is the, um, the, the 10,000 hours principle. Are, are you familiar with this concept? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the principle is that if you spend uh, 10,000 hours uh, engaging with like, like say uh, let, let's say you're playing the piano so you you spend 10,000 hours practicing the piano not not just playing one yeah. piece for 10,000 hours that'd be stupid 
but if but actually actively engaging within the process of learning that instrument and if you do it for 10,000 hours you will become a world class pianist right right exactly and that that can then that can also be applied that's just one example that that can be applied to not just to music but to many many other aspects of life and it can, it can right. be applied to business it can be applied to sport it can be applied to writing and all sorts of things like that i mean do, uh, do you think there is some uh, i mean i know there is research to kind of back this up but i'm just wondering from your point of view yeah. as a guy who no doubt has done ten thousand hours something tells me i have yeah you must have you must have done you must have done I've probably spent 10,000 hours just studying the clarinet as, you know, just how to play the clarinet. Exactly, um, yeah, yeah. Something tells me I've done 10,000 other hours wrestling with how to write songs or something like that. But yeah, I, I guess I feel like, and this is, this is probably a reflection of my age right now, but I just feel like I just want to keep doing it. And Maybe for me personally, I have a feeling that some of the concerns that I used to have about how good am I or is somebody else better than me or that type of thing uh, are kind of fading away and being overshadowed by just the feeling of like, I just want to keep doing it every day, partly to see what comes next. And partly, actually, still to try to get better at things. Yeah, I think I think that's the idea. The the, the principle being that the more the, the more that you do something, the better you get at that thing. But I, I think that there must be a cutoff point where, where you. I think I think this is where the ten thousand hours thing. I think that that is the cutoff point of now you've now you've done this amount of stuff. You have now become kind of. A, world class at the thing that you do because you've spent all of that time doing it from, from from there you can do whatever you want with that maybe you can get better maybe you can just stay as you are but because you have reached that level you are now uh, um you're not going to get worse at that thing you are like the master of that thing i see just speaking from my own personal experience i because yeah. i've been I've been so kind of stuck into writing fiction for such a long time. I, I've definitely uh -huh. done 10,000 hours doing it. And okay. it, I, 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 by no means would I say that I am world-class, but it is, I think once I've reached, I, I, I feel like I've reached a point where it is just much, 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 much easier than it used to be. Like when I was yes. starting out, it, it, was, it, was, it was a struggle to string a sentence together and uh, without questioning it right. without thinking sort of well what what does that mean or or you know well i'll delete that and write something better than that whereas now i right. can kind of bang out kind of five thousand words in in the space of an afternoon and that'll and 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 that there you go i can do that because because i've got the experience behind me yes exactly right right and and I I would say that that okay so as we as we go along and as we achieve some degree of competence in the, the basic activity or the basic skills that we need in order to 
to devote ourselves to the creation of work, then I, I think that the thing that we're that we're striving to get better at, and and maybe striving to get deeper at, has more to do with engaging the curiosity and in, engaging the search for meaning. And and yeah, I would say yeah, it's it's important to have those skills. Then, if you're a writer, you need to have the skills to engage with words. And if you if you're a musician, you, you know, like for me, like I better be a pretty good clarinet player if if I'm trying to throw myself into a world of curiosity and searching. But I feel like that that's the horizon that opens up, and that thing never stops. I don't think you become a master at that. I think you just keep, once you, once you get into that world, you just keep looking. An interesting thing that I've found as a writer, as I say, I'm so far into it that I, I find it difficult to read a book without analysing the whole thing line by line. Whenever I pick a book up, uh, I just, that, that is what I do. I, I would just, un, right, unless, yeah. I'm, unless I'm reading like Tolstoy or something like that, where I, I don't necessarily okay, question yeah. what I'm reading. Um, I, I don't have that with music because I'm not a musician. I can listen to a piece of music and just kind of let it wash over me. And I was wondering yeah. if you feel the same way, if you can listen to a piece of music that someone else has created without saying kind of, oh, I know, I see what they've done there. And, and just kind of, uh, uh, do you have a way of turning the analysis off? <laughs> or um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, for one thing, I'm blessed because I'm not very good at music. So I'm not, I don't have like the, a very quick mind for understanding everything that's going on in music. So I still, most of the time when I'm listening to music, I'm just enjoying it. That's my basic activity. Um, I do find, interestingly, now that I'm uh, sitting around with a microphone every day and recording and then doing my best in a rudimentary way to try to mix the songs and stuff like that, uh, it does bring into focus for me when I listen to some records i do i am much more aware of the sound of the record and and that's the part that i start to analyze like how was it miked how did they do the mixing and stuff like that so that's something that just at just at the moment because i've been working so much on recording every day that seems to be coming more into into my mind and yeah there's a part of the mind that it's always for me it's always tracking in a, in a sense, I'm kind of transcribing the melody of whatever I listen to, making sure that I know what the notes are and, and what, making sure I understand what the chord structure is. I guess I can't exactly turn off that part of the mind. But now, nah, for the most part, I just really love music. And when I listen to it, I just really enjoy the heck out of it. Yeah, that's good. That's nice. <laughs> it's, it's nice. <laughs> I mean, there, there is the, I mean, the, the certain things that I, you know, just talking from my experience as a writer, I mean, there's certain things that I read, like I'm reading this book at the moment. Um, it's called 
It's called um, How the Soldier Repairs the Gramophone. It's a German novel. It's by oh. this guy who had, uh, about his experience of um, living in the former Yugoslavia under the Tito regime. And um, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's such an amazing book. It's, it's so well written. And that I'm reading it and I'm thinking that, that every, every single bit of it, every single kind of sentence is kind of, there's an element of surprise within it. So mm, you, rather nice. than, you can't really kind of analyze it because it's kind of everything is just kind of, oh, I didn't, I wasn't expecting that sort of right. thing. You know, it's, um, it, for me, it's like, uh, I, I, can, I, I feel like I can appreciate it from like a writer's point of view. It's kind of like w when I see another writer doing something that I wouldn't have thought of, you know, yes. or, or, it's just really pleasing, you know, and, and, and kind yes. of uh, yes. inspirational in, in that sense, you know. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's real nice. kind of your kind of musical history and stuff i'm very interested uh -huh. in um the the new klezmer trio yeah that that band that was a band with a mission that was a band with a purpose and it was my first band and and i was like in when i was in college i started playing a lot of klezmer music for one thing you could make some money playing at weddings and bar mitzvahs and stuff and for another thing i really dug it i mean it's pretty amazing music and especially if you're playing the clarinet because there's some wonderful uh, artists from the old days like Naftali Brandwine and Dave Terrace that really, really could play that stuff. And, and we're lucky enough to have recordings of their, of their stuff. So I really devoted myself to it. I was way into it. And, and then at a certain point, I kind of felt like, I just kind of had this idea of like, could you use that music or the elements of that music or the melodies of that music and open it up in, a, in an improvised Context And in some ways, the model was, uh, let's say, Albert Eiler, John Coltrane, and like that. And, the, and, and I was, so, I mean, in some ways, I was kind of wondering, like, okay, if I take everything I can do when I'm playing classroom music, I mean, all the, all the licks, all the intricate melodic stuff that I've worked on so much, and what if I, what if we had a band where you could, you could just play it like as if it was free jazz or something, and just like, Use, use that vocabulary and really like let it bust open. And that's where New Klezmer Trio came from. And it was so much fun, I'm telling you. That was a lot of fun. Because there's a lot of pent up energy in Klezmer music. It's, it's, you know, it's naughty and convoluted and, and packed with weird twists and turns. And I had done that so much, I knew that stuff inside and out. So then the opportunity to just say, okay, let's see where it goes. Start with one of those songs. At first, that's what we did. We would just start with one of those klezmer songs and just uh, 
let it rip. And boy, was that fun. That changed everything for me. That was the band where I had my first experience of like feeling like the music grabbed a hold of me and showed me where to go. And that's super important. I think, I think most people have that experience, an initial experience of that sort at some point in their lives. And then it starts to open the door and show them what might be possible in music. And for me, it happened with New Class Trio. So it was a deep experience and it really meant a lot to me. And we kind of had a chip on our shoulder in the sense of telling people that what we were doing was klezmer music, even though to a lot of people that thought they liked klezmer music, it didn't sound like klezmer music to them. Well, some people loved it. John Zorn bought a copy of our first record and called me up in 1992. And uh, just out of the blue, he called me up and then he said, I love the record. I want you to come to this festival I'm putting together in Munich. And that was like such a thrill. We went to Munich, we played our music and that gave us a little foothold over there. And we started touring a lot in Europe. So there were people, a lot of musicians, I think, heard what we were doing and, and, and liked it. But like I said, there were also, there were, there were people that saw the word klezmer and would come to our concerts and then they'd be like incensed. They'd be really upset. That's not klezmer music. And you know, I mean, of course, to them it wasn't. I understand that. But we had a real, we, we had a mission. Like I said, we had a chip on our shoulder, or at least I did. I was like, yeah, it's, it's klezmer. <laughs> That's where klezmer is going right now. And, and, and that, that was important. It was, in, in other words, it was important to, to us to like kind of like define what we were doing as in the klezmer tradition rather than saying that it was a fusion or a hybrid or something like that. I, I felt like I was inventing a new thing. I mean, nobody had ever done that before. So it was all mine. And like I said, I had spent a lot of time studying and, and learning how to execute the kind of traditional klezmer melodies. So I had a lot of material up my sleeve. So when I started writing my own songs and messing around with like ways that that music could be, like I kind of had, I, I was trying to find a way that you could kind of like refract those sounds or something, or like have multiple versions of those sounds simultaneously. I mean, I wanted to do that. I wanted to achieve that in my own clarinet playing. And so I, I worked pretty hard on it and, and I developed some, you know, I kind of had my own ideas, some kind of like techniques or compositional techniques or improvisational techniques and theories based on a kind of um, extended vision of klezmer harmony and melody and stuff like that. So yeah, I got way into it. I think what I'm saying is that it had a big effect on me and that that sounded even if you listen to plague diaries right now i mean i think you'll find that that sound it's something i keep coming back to maybe i'm coming back to it more now than before i don't know
one thing that I didn't get around to listening to was uh, Orphic Machine. Um, it sounds yeah. very uh, interesting to me. So uh, yeah, th tell me about that. I think that I earlier identified, I said there were two pillars of my work. One was studying with Rosario Mazzeo and the other was being deeply influenced by and also having a chance to study with Steve Lacey. And I think the third pillar of my work is the work of Alan Grossman. And I, in a lot of ways, it just happened totally by accident. I, because when I was a freshman at Brandeis University, and I didn't know anything, I didn't know anything about anything, somebody said, hey, there's a brilliant thinker on the faculty here. You have to take classes with him. His name's Alan Grossman. <clears throat> and I took them at their word and signed up for class. And he he taught in the literature department or the English department or something. And well, he, Alan Grossman's a poet. He was a he passed away recently, but he was a poet and a scholar. And in a lot of ways, what he really was was kind of like a prophet. And he was deeply interested in questions about the transmission of knowledge. And I would say the transmission of wisdom, although I don't think he exactly used that word. I took a couple of literature classes from him that consisted of just, in a way you could say like learning how to read, like we read the Bible, Gilgamesh, Moby Dick, books like that. And, and he, he would demonstrate that these books could be read as a way of uncovering and putting together the story of the evolution of human consciousness. That sounds like a, a big topic, but that's exactly what he was up to. And, and it was absolutely mind blowing. It was the most astonishing thing I've ever been exposed to, I have to say. I had no idea what was going on. I, I, I spent a whole year in those classes being astonished and also feeling like I couldn't understand anything that he was talking about. But the thing is, even if I couldn't understand it, I knew that there was, I knew that he was saying things that contained a lot of truth and a lot of wisdom. And I, so I struggled pretty hard to try to understand it. And then, I mean, really like 20 years later, I came across a book by Alan Grossman that's called Summa Lyrica, Summa Lyrica. And I was astonished that there was this book that, and to me seemed to, like he had written down all the like really deep stuff that he had been talking about in class. I mean, that's how it struck me. And then I was so thrilled. I was like, I'm gonna study this thing. And I read that book for like five years. I took it on tour with me wherever I went. I was always reading it constantly because I really wanted to try to, I wanted to figure out what it was that he understood or I, or I wanted to, I kind of wanted to understand that stuff too. But the thing is that the book, it's called Speculative Poetics. It's called a book on speculative poetics kind of meaning it's about poetry. It's about the it's a book about the philosophy of poetry. But even that for Alan Grossman was a vehicle for him to use the study of poetry as a way of understanding ourselves and the development of consciousness and our place in the world. And it's just like, but the, but the book is written in ways that it's, it's not just, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's almost impossible to understand. 
the book consists of statements about poetry that leave you really scratching your head. But again, I, uh, like I said earlier about the experience of being in this class, I mean, you get the feeling like there is something really, really, really deep being said here. And I wish I could understand what it means. Eventually, I, I told um, Chamber Music America that I was going to write a piece that was based on that book. And I kind of thought I would just like try to make a, I don't know what I thought I would do, maybe to try to map out the structure of that book and write a piece of music that followed that structure. I, d I didn't know, I don't know what I was thinking, but when I started to write the music, I just felt like, wait a minute, there's all this amazing stuff getting said here in this book that I can't really understand, but it's having an effect on me. So why don't I just use these sayings as lyrics, write some songs where, where these statements are used as lyrics. By putting, by putting the, those statements in songs, I would, I would allow, I would give, I would create, create a vehicle that would allow other people to get exposed to and contemplate those sayings. And I mean, a lot of the songs on Orphic Machine are like the total lyrical content of a song might be 12 words or something like that, but it's just so packed. That I just feel like I'm gonna write a song where this statement gets repeated about you know, a, n a number of times in different ways. And that's gonna allow people to enjoy the music and then also listen to this uh, wisdom and maybe get something out of it. Ben Goldberg's Brainchild is a band that I've had. Well, the origin of that band is that I told a club that I would that I was going to premiere new works for a big band. This is like back in like 1995 or something like that. I was like, yeah, I'm bringing in a big band. I'm going to write a bunch of music and we'll play it. And then I completely failed to write the music and I was kind of panicked and I had the musicians there. And the only thing that occurred to me was that I could whisper in people's ears and tell them what to do and then conduct. That would be my solution to not having written any music for the big band. And it was so much fun. It was like a total blast. So ever since then, I, it, it's, it's a band that comes together occasionally, usually like once every three or four months or something like that. And that's what I do. That's the compositional process for that band is I whisper in everybody's ear and then I give uh, downbeats and people do what I tell them to do. The only rule of the band is you have to do what I tell you until I tell you to stop or until I tell you to do something else. That's the agreement that I have with the musicians. And that, that's part of the value that I've found in working like that is that by bossing people around, I'm kind of alleviating them of a certain kind of burden that musicians find themselves in when improvising, which is having to decide about questions of like, 
how much is enough or when should I stop or should I do something else and stuff like that, which, I, which strangely, I think we discovered that being alleviated of those kind of questions actually frees people up to play stronger in every other way because they're not trying to guide the process themselves. I'm just like, okay, I'll be in charge. I'm guiding it. And you just do what I tell you. But, but the kind of things that I tell people to do, really, I've tried to design the instructions in a way that, that opens up uh, creative possibilities for people. So sometimes the instructions are specific musical content, like play something in the key of E flat major or something like that. And sometimes, see, the thing that I found was that there's like a category of instructions that I can give that that's like giving people a job to do where the sound that is produced is a byproduct of doing that job so that people don't even exactly have to be consciously shaping the musical content they can just get to work on the task that i've assigned them like i could tell somebody play everything that that other person plays and i could tell the other person don't play anything that that other guy plays or something like that so that i can create situations because i'm whispering in people's ears and nobody really knows what i've told anybody else i can i can try to set up interpersonal situations with the goal of creating something that might otherwise not be able to be created and usually we have a blast it's a lot of fun you're doing this all, all in front of a live audience is that, is that, am I that's right that? yeah so you're kind of like the equivalent of the conductor yeah i'm the i'm the conductor and i'm the composer because after after i whisper then i do stand in front of wave my hands in front of the band <laughs> oh so you do that <laughs> to bring that, to, to bring I, people in yeah yes okay right and, and, and re here's the thing, though, that recently that the experience of doing Brainchild really paid off in a way because I teach a course on jazz improvisation at, at University of California, Berkeley, and the pandemic hit and we were no longer allowed to meet together. We couldn't meet in the same room and therefore we couldn't, we also couldn't put on our usual end of semester concert. So I said, let's make a record. And the idea is to make a record using the materials that we have at the moment, which basically consisted of email and Zoom, and everybody had some more or less rudimentary form of recording themselves. And as we worked on it, as we tried to develop the concept of what could be done, what kind of record could we make, actually the experience of brainchild began to really loom very large in that because what occurred to us is that the because i said let's do something i i said let's don't try to create a record that tries to mimic music that could have been played in person because it's not going to work you can't do that right now it's only going to sound like shitty music it's just going to sound like a shitty version of something that you could have done more easily before. So I said, let's, let's see if there's, is there some way that we can approach this where we can make something with our current materials that could not have been made under normal circumstances. And that's where the experience of brainchild started to become very important because what we realized is that one opportunity that, that people had, because every, everybody in the class uh, was going to compose a piece 
to be played by all the other people in the class. And we realized that for each person as a composer, one opportunity that they had was essentially to whisper in everybody's ear, although it would be done through email or something like that, but they could give instructions to every, to each individual musician that was playing their piece. They could give everybody personal instructions and that person didn't have to know what was being told to anybody else in the group. And the, and the group didn't need to know what was being told to the individual. So the students really made good use of that, created an, an amazing record. Send me a note. Okay. Good, so there's that, there is that, there is. Know what you're doing this is the thing so from an outsider's point of view like from my point uh -huh. of view as someone who's not involved in music the temptation will be to think well what 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 the hell is this guy doing but obviously you know what you're doing so you, you've got that like, going back to what we were saying earlier about having the experience behind you um you know yes if, if you were doing this as like a a an 18 year old kid or something <laughs> and this was your idea maybe, maybe people would look on that differently and think well oh I, I see he's trying something out he's 18 this is what uh, he's experimenting here but you you've actually you know you've got that experience you kind of you, you know what you're doing so do you think uh -huh. you would have had a different reaction to what you were doing if you were a lot younger in, in terms of the brainchild if you were doing brainchild, but you were but you were you're 15 years old. Let, let's say you're doing exactly the same thing, literally exactly the same thing, but you're a 15 year old uh, boy, essentially. Well, you know, I mean, there's there's many part there's many aspects of the work in art that re, that require us to make use of our inner 15 year old. <laughs> You, you know what I mean? Like, like you gotta. I know exactly what you're saying. Yes. On some on some level, you have to jump off that cliff. And 15 year olds are much better at jumping off a cliff than 60 year olds. That's how old I am now. So, I mean, yeah. Partly, partly I know what I'm doing, but partly I also don't know what I'm doing. But I, but I do have the experience of throwing myself into situations where I don't know what I'm doing, and keeping my head on my shoulders and finding a, a nice way through it. Yeah, and I, I suppose in a way, it, it doesn't make a difference what age you are because it, it's an experiment. Whatever, whatever your level of experience is, um, it's, an ex yes. it's, it's, it's kind of, a, it's a leap into the unknown. So with, with any kind of leap into the unknown, it, it may, in a way, it's irrelevant what your experience level is, and it's irrelevant. I know way. it's funny, and and in some ways, I feel like these days that I mean, like I was trying to talk about before, I kind of feel like the the 
the thing that I'm trying to get better at is jumping into the unknown. That's the thing that I feel like I keep working at. Is it possible to do that without getting paralyzed by fear or without second guessing myself or without bailing out at the last minute or, or all the different possible uh, pitfalls that can happen when you try to jump into the unknown. I mean, that's basically what we're doing when we're making music or art or, or whatever. I mean, we're trying to do something that's kind of scary over and over and over again. And, and for me, maybe it's an illusion, but, the, but in some ways I feel like maybe the, the thing that I'm hoping to get better at is just being able to do that with more courage or, or less hesitation or something. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems sometimes that, that in some ways experience can be a disadvantage when you're experimenting with something because um, experience can make you think, oh, well, that's not going to work because it didn't work last time. I did something similar a few years ago and um, that didn't work. So this sort of thing that's a similar idea isn't going to work. Whereas if you're 15 and you, you haven't got that previous experience, you, you could, you'd be more happy to take that leap into the unknown and therefore um, discover something that perhaps the experienced person wouldn't discover. I would say that, I mean, just going back to our talk about New Klezmer Trio, which I said, I wasn't 15 when I made those records, but I was, it was the beginning of my, beginning of my musical career. And when I listen back to those records, I'm, one thing that I'm struck by over and over is like, one, I think it sounds great. And I'm pleased with that. And two, I feel like, how the fuck did I have the courage to do that on a record? I didn't know anything. Like I think back on those days and I feel like I thought I knew everything. And, I, and it's terrifying to me to realize I didn't know anything. But in some ways not knowing anything was part of what gave me the courage to just jump right on, jump all over it and, and just make something happen. I couldn't do it these days. I, I couldn't play that way these days. That's why I'm happy that the records exist because there's no way I could do that now. If we see William Blake, if we see William Blake in a vision, but William Blake does not see us, that's a fiction, that's a fiction.
for listening huge thanks to ben goldberg my mind is now blown check out the links to ben's music including the plague diary project in the show notes buy my books a history of sarcasm 100 and everything i am all the details are on my website frankburton.co.uk alongside my video series the ragbag rambler which you will enjoy very much indeed I will see you next week. We have another great guest and another great show all together. Enjoy yourselves in the meantime. Bye-bye. Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more. <laughs>